This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon, entitled Fully Alive, The Call to Jesus, is by Bishop Stewart and Catherine Ruck and is part one in the series. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, a Colombian author, in his book, 100 Years of Solitude, tells a story of a multi-generational family in which the main character, Jose Arcadio Buendia, commits a murder. And because of his guilt over it, moves his family and a large group of followers over the mountains and into an uninhabited place to found a kind of utopia. In the words of the author, Jose led them to the land that no one had promised them. A group of gypsies becomes their one contact with the outside world by bringing science, new inventions as they understood them, and later, only entertainment. The leader of the gypsies, Melchiades, becomes a major figure in the novel. I find it interesting that his name sounds a lot like Melchizedek, the priest in the Bible a priest who's outside the line of the Levite priests, which Hebrews tells us is the line of priests from which Jesus comes. Melchiades dies early in the book and leaves Jose feeling disconnected from the world. At one point during this village's history, a wanderer comes in and gives them the contagious insomnia plague. Insomnia wasn't so bad because they didn't feel tired. And guess what? They could now work all night. But the shocking result of the insomnia is that they began to lose their memory. Elaborate methods were instituted to protect them from forgetfulness. At first, it was just labels. Table, cow, chair, dog. But the symbols that the words represented began to be lost as well. So they would add explanations. This is the cow. She must be milked every morning so that she will produce milk. And the milk must be boiled in order to be mixed with coffee to make coffee and milk. Now, in my own insomnia, I never forget the way that coffee's made. <laughs> but I'm glad that they were hanging on to this important, important ritual. At the entrance to town, they hung a sign to remind everyone God exists. Eventually, the meaning of mother and father became faint and shadowy. Marquez says, the system demanded so much vigilance and moral strength that many succumbed to the spell of an imaginary reality, one invented by themselves. In their insular imaginary reality, disconnected from the fullness of reality, they needed something or someone from the outside to bring in memory, to bring in supernatural aid. Into this plague arrives the resurrected Melchiades. He realizes the falseness of their greeting and that they've really forgotten who he is. He recognizes the plague and pulls from his satchel a drink. Here's what the book says. He gave Jose a drink of a gentle color, and the light went on in his memory. His eyes became moist from weeping, even before he noticed himself in an absurd living room where objects were labeled. 
and before he was ashamed of the solemn nonsense written on the walls, and even before he recognized the newcomer with a dazzling glow of joy, it was Melchiades. The whole village is given the drink and returned to wholeness. I read this in grad school, but as I read it again recently, it was hard for me not to feel the parallel to the human journey. The journey all of us experience of trying to create a world that we desire in order to manage our disconnection from meaning. Because of our fall and our, subs our sin, we isolate ourselves and seek to, to create a controlled world. But the uncontrollable plague of insomnia in which we begin to lose our hold on reality, yes, even language for the most basic of understandings, leads us to create systems of evaluation and labeling that are disjointed from ultimate reality. How can we not, in our own culture, feel the utter loss of mooring as people seek to name themselves and assign arbitrary meaning to words and symbols? The ridiculousness of asking children to decide if they are boys or girls, which is going on even now in our culture. Even the attempt to eliminate the words that for centuries have shaped our understanding of man and woman, mother, father, and family is incoherent. We cannot apprehend or cling to our identity primarily through systems of intellect. We need a revelation. Melchiades is that Christ figure that resurrects from the dead and comes to us with a cure. What a Eucharistic symbol, drinking the cup of remembrance. In this series, we need an epiphany. We want to remember who God created us to be, fully alive. We want to come into the presence of Christ who has created us and recreated us by dying for us, resurrecting to new life, and then by offering his life for ours. He made us. He knows us. He has called us by name. And he is the word. And all definition and language is generated from him. I have an image for each of us as we embark on this Fully Alive series. When we were in Brazil, we visited a monastery in Sao Paulo called São Bento. In a side chapel, there was a prayer railing. Two angels face each other, and they're kneeling down like this, and they have in front of them these incense, the prayers of the saints, as it says in Revelation. Their wings are out behind them as if they've just come from another world, and they're there praying. There's a space at the railing, and it's the person they're praying for. Whoever's kneeling there is between those angels, and they're just interceding. Above, in the gorgeous mosaic in the apse, is this tender portrayal of Jesus looming large right before the person who's praying. His arms are extended with the broken bread, and the words above him are written in the Latin imperative, accept and eat. This is my body for you. My breath was taken away. 
A woman was kneeling between the nailing angels in heart-wrenching prayer. Or I would have lunged to be there. I am praying each of us will be there in this series, knowing that the angels are interceding for us. We will see Jesus and hear his words for each of us, accept and eat. This is my body for you. So how do we remember? How are we freed from the insomnia plague that the Bible describes as our sinful nature and as the world and as the work of the enemy? How are we awakened? How do we remember who God is? And how do we remember who God has made us, male and female, to be? Catherine poignantly and poetically pointed us through the beauty of that story to the reality of Holy Communion, the Eucharist. And we as Anglicans embrace that reality of remembrance, and we'll have the Feast of Remembrance soon together. But even in our worship service and in our lives, we start with the Word. It's word and sacrament infused by the ministry and the presence of the Holy Spirit that awaken us to who God is and in God who we are. This morning, I want to give you a core scripture verse, one that I would encourage you to consider memorizing during these six weeks that will be a guiding light for our journey together in Fully Alive. It's a verse written by the Apostle Paul. He writes it in the book of Galatians, which is a book profoundly about the gift of Christian identity. And he says this, and the verse is in your bulletins. It's also in your prayer journal there, and you can turn there if you want. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There are two things I want to say about that profound scripture verse to you this morning that have to do with the journey of remembrance, the journey of identity in Jesus. The first is that we live by openness. The second is that we live by dying. We live by openness and we live by dying. As we work through that packed and carefully wrought sentence from the Apostle Paul, this morning I don't want to start with, I am crucified with Christ. We'll get there. But I actually want to start with the vision he gives of how it is that we live our lives in Christ. And he uses the phrase, I live by faith in the Son of God. 
So in so many ways, this series is an exploration of faith. It's an exploration of love. It's an exploration of hope. What is it to live by faith? That is a word that slides off of so many of us so quickly. We can't grab hold of it. We can't attach to it. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. There's an assurance in faith. The best commentary on faith that I've read, apart from other scripture verses about faith, comes from John Paul II. And he said that faith is openness to God, that it's an assurance in things hoped for, whereby we live in an open way toward Jesus, in a vulnerable way toward Jesus, in an utterly yielded way toward the Lord, that we live by openness to the Son of God, who in His openness, the openness of the cross, loved us and gave Himself for us. When it comes to your identity, and when it comes to your clarity about who you are, who is it that you've opened yourself to to help determine who you are and how you understand who you are? What people have you opened yourself to who have told you who you are? What images and symbols in media or what you've read or what you've seen in film are telling you who you are? Let me put it a different way, and maybe a little bit more specifically. And this is kind of a guiding question for our six weeks together. Who decides who you are? And before you A-plus students quickly say, Jesus, I know that's the right answer. It's Jesus. I want to say Jesus. But even working on this series for about a year, I've had to face such a struggle in the reality of my sinful nature that after years of working on the reality of having an identity in Jesus, I yet am brought up again and again that I am in such a pitched battle in my life between my sinful nature, which is consistently and subtly and even creatively trying to always convince me, you say who you are, Stuart. You say who you are. I determine who I am. And so for me, I have a kind of unspoken personal creed that gives me a kind of stability, which is no stability at all, that says, for me personally, I do, therefore I am. I do, therefore I am. I feel good when I'm doing things well, which means for me, quantifiable realities. I've baptized that with Christian language. I call it fruitfulness. So I feel good when it looks like I'm doing well. And I feel bad when the metrics that I've chosen for myself as part of my self-invention looks like I'm not doing well. And I literally can have whole days where I feel bad all day. Why? Because I'm not apparently doing well. Or I feel good all day. Why? Because I'm doing well. And I still have that foundational reality that I am in battle with. I, I am ashamed by that at one moment. And yet the other moment, I have to be honest, that is my battle. Who decides who I am? I decide who I am. Does the voice of Jesus a part of it? Yes, a voice of Jesus can be a part of it, but often I make him one of several voices. I listen to his voice, but I weigh against the voice of others as well. I decide which voices I'm going to listen to the most. Sometimes he has more emphasis. Sometimes he has less emphasis. And no matter what emphasis Jesus has, if it isn't the ultimate and complete emphasis, you're deciding who you are. And by the way, when you decide who you are, it isn't that singular and it isn't that focused. Because we are... 
left to ourselves a cacophony of voices. You're letting all kinds of voices and all kinds of influences, ones that you're aware of and ones that you're not aware of, decide who you are if you ultimately decide, I decide who I am. So to live by faith is to live by utter openness to Jesus and say, Jesus, you determine who I am. What's your personal creed? I gave you one of my most prominent ones. I have other ones as well. Is it, I'm the smartest woman in the room, therefore I am. By the way, until you're not, and then you have a crisis, and you're taken up by jealousy and envy of someone else who appears smarter than you. I'm generally one of the most attractive people, therefore I am. Here's an American favorite. I'm hardworking. I may not be that smart. I may not be that creative, but I'm hardworking. Therefore, I am. I'm gay. Therefore, I am. I'm lesbian, not gay. Therefore, I am. I'm trans. Therefore, I am. I'm straight, heterosexual. Therefore, I am. What's your creed? I would encourage you to clear about what your, when you answer the question, I determine who I am, identity creed is. There's a, a beautiful book written by Dr. Rosaria Butterfield called Openness Unhindered. And in it, Dr. Butterfield tells her own story as well as doing some really good work. And the title, the subtitle is Sexual Identity and Union with Christ. And she does a lot of work on what it means to have identity with Christ. She shares in her own journey how she had um, in her, she was an English professor, tenure professor in a large state university, how she had 10 years in which she identified herself by her heterosexual sexual identity and practice. And she lived a kind of promiscuous heterosexual life. Then after that for 10 years, she defined herself by her lesbian identity, which she says is sexual, but not just sexual. It was more than that. She said, when I came to Christ and I heard his call and his claim upon my identity, it wasn't first lesbianism that I had to be saved out of. That did come at one point. It was not lesbianism, first and foremost. It was my pride. It was my sense of my own self-invention that I realized I had to be rescued from. So I'm going to teach you an identity creed. It comes from the Bible. Jesus taught it to his followers the night before he was crucified. And it's a creed. It's an I believe. I use it actually in an embodied way, and I want to encourage you. Uh, we'll do this in just a moment. I'll just tell you now, then we'll do it. But I literally put my hand on my chest. I was taught this 25 years ago by a remarkable minister of the gospel. Her, her name was Leanne Payne. And I've done this for 25 years since. But I put my hand on my chest, and I say the words from John 14, 20, the gospel that was read. And this is what I say. And I do this all the time, by the way. Driving, falling asleep, waking up. Jesus said, I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. That's an identity creed. Can you put your hand on your chest? If you're not comfortable doing it, you don't have to, but I encourage you to. And let's say together what Jesus said. Let's say, 
Jesus said, I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. I'll just breathe sometimes after that. Okay. I have found that to be a very important practice to renouncing my creed. I do, therefore I am. Now, when we say that our identity comes from Jesus, it can sound, again, somewhat individualistic, like Jesus and I. Now, Jesus and I are clear. And there is a way which is right to say, yes, Jesus alone. I get my identity from Jesus alone. But it isn't exactly accurate because Jesus is never alone. So if you're unified with Jesus, what you find is that you're brought into a unity with a whole entire, stunning, profound, glorious, almost indescribable world of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're open to Jesus, but you're also called to be open to the Trinity, the fullness of God himself, because Jesus is with the Father, and the Father is with Jesus. And Jesus said, I do nothing that my Father hasn't called me to do. That when you come into relationship with Jesus, it's not just you and Jesus. You're coming into relationship with the profundity and the depth and the glory of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is why Jesus can say, I will never leave you as orphans. I myself have never been orphaned, nor will you be orphaned. You're actually going to live your life in a profound communion of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Indeed, what the church has always believed, what the Bible has taught, is that when Jesus, crucified, resurrected, ascended to the Father, that a human person is now in the Trinity of God. And that we find our place in Jesus, in the Trinity. So your identity is so much fuller than anything you might think or someone else might say, no matter how clever or creative or seemingly beautiful it is, because the beauty behind all beauty is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The life behind all life is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The joy behind all joy is the triune God. Now, this is really important. So you got to get this and wrestle with this, because everything else we're going to say for the next five weeks won't make a lot of sense unless you get this. What happens in the Trinity is we have a unity. And we'll say this in the Nicene Creed. There's a unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the, Son, God the Holy Spirit. Of equal substance. They are deeply unified, and yet they are distinct. There's a distinctiveness. Why does this matter? In your union with Jesus, there's a deep unity. You are in Jesus. Jesus is in you. That's what he taught. But that doesn't mean you're not a person. That doesn't mean you don't have a personality and that actually God doesn't want to use your idiosyncrasies and your loves and your passions and who you are in his kingdom. There's a tension there that's so important. You have to hold that tension. It's an ultimately a Trinitarian. It's not a tension for the Trinity. It's who the Trinity is. It's just tension for us to try and understand it. Indeed, to hold that tension, not only to hold the tension of you and Jesus, so that you understand, yes, I am fully in Jesus, and yet I am a person, that tension is critical in the life of male and female. This is at the heart of what it means to be made in the image of God, fully unified, yet distinct, male and female. Fully unified, yet distinct. And the tendency to overemphasize that or underemphasize that is great. And when Catholics are man and woman, you'll have a chance to watch us overemphasize and underemphasize. We'll get to practice it for you. Because it's so rich and profound. It's so hard to get it right. And often story and poetry are so helpful to try and at least get close. But when you open yourself to Jesus, you open yourself to the Trinity, you open yourself to the other, including the other sex, male, female. We'll do more on that in the weeks to come.
So then the question is, how? How do we get there? How do we get to this union, this, this openness to Jesus? How, how do we answer the question truly, Jesus defines who I am? And now we come to the first part of the verse. You can look at that again in your, your, your bulletin or your journal. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm hoping right now there is somebody who has never heard that verse. Okay, if you're somebody who's never heard that verse and you understand that crucifixion had to do with Roman execution, if you didn't understand that, that's what it had to do, and this is what they were executed on. It was a, a civil execution. If you've never heard that verse before and you're just hearing that right now and you have even a pulse, you are freaking out. Because that verse just said that you are crucified with Christ. You're executed with Christ. You're dying with Christ. It is one thing to believe in the cross. And those who are Christians say, I believe in the cross. It is another thing to internalize the cross. To understand that the only way to live an identity with Jesus is by the cross. Why? Because our sinful nature is so powerful. And our deep, deep urge to say, I decide who I am, is so incredibly intense that there's only one way to get free from that, and that's death. A death to self-invention. A death to saying, I decide. There's no managing this. There's no negotiating this. What Jesus says is, you must be crucified with me. And what's the great thing that we fear about death? How alone you must feel. That when it comes to dying, you're dying on your own. But even there, we're not left as orphans. Even there, Jesus is crucified. And we are crucified with him. Do you see how identity-wise you're never alone? Do you see how profoundly deranged the American autonomous project of not, not the individual as person, there's something to that that's right, but the individual as autonomous power person and individuality is so incredibly against the good news of God in Christ? Do you see why you feel lonely so often? and isolated so often, and exhausted so often? Because you were never, ever meant to ever be alone in any way. I, I wish that every one of you could live in a culture more intact than the American culture, even just for a month, just to know the relief. They have other major problems. But not every culture has the autonomous idolatry that we have. Just to know you're not alone. Just to taste it. That in itself is another reason to be involved. That's among many reasons with other cultures. C.S. Lewis, Christian thinker, mid-20th century, said it so well. He said, die before you die. There's no chance after. So we live by dying to our impulse to self-invention. Before Paul teaches, I've been crucified with Christ, he actually told a story right before this in Galatians chapter 2. And it's a story about his superior and about his partner ministry, whose name is Peter. And Peter was set out to be the leader of the new Christian church. Peter had that call upon him. Peter was somebody who had a, a huge challenge in his background where he had betrayed Jesus. He had turned his back on Jesus, and he repented of that and was now a radical follower of Jesus. But even after all of that, Peter has a moment where he's drawn in by, by other men who call him to not follow Jesus, but follow the customs of men. He's called to follow the culture that he has been a part of. He's confused in his identity, and he lets them say, we decide who you are. 
And he's brought in by this. He's following the culture of men. And Paul, his inferior in the work of the church, has to confront him and say, Peter, your conduct is not in line with the good news of God. That's what he says. Your conduct is not in line with the gospel. The good news is Jesus defines who you are, but you let the customs of men define who you are. He tells that story about Peter, I think, in this context to say, we are all so incredibly vulnerable to self-invention. Even Peter, Paul is saying, who we all look up to, fell this way. So here's what's really important to, to, to understand and I need to share with you. Is that crucifixion is a suffering. How else can it not be? I mean, it's a suffering image. So I think the church does well, and we've done well at Res, teaching clearly, if you want to follow Jesus, have your identity with Jesus, you need to confess. You need to confess your personal creed in the context of this sermon, for example. And you need to repent, which means you need to turn from living by that personal creed. But here's the third part of being open to Jesus and living by dying. Not only do you confess, not only do you repent, you have to be prepared to suffer. Why? Because when you have set your identity somewhere else, and you have followed the impulses that you have, or the feelings that you have, or your self-understanding that you have, or the thinking that you have. When you have followed that for so long and you no longer say, I will no longer follow that feeling, I will no longer follow that thinking, I will no longer follow that impulse, when you begin to do that, unbelievable pain can come up in your heart. You can feel absolutely just overwhelmed by the pain that's there. I've had moments still like this, and when I first turned back to Jesus in my 20s, I had no preparation for all the pain that was coming. I mean, I was so happy to be out of the lifestyle where I defined who I was, but I was in this journey then of dying to my self-invention, dying to self. I found that all these feelings would still come up, and I'd want to do things, but I said, I, 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 I can't act on that now because that's coming out of a false identity, or I want to think things. I, I can't think that way now. And in that moment where I would say, I want to, but I can't, in that moment of I want to and I can't, I was overwhelmed with so much emotion and most of it pain. And what I learned and what someone taught me, and I want to give you, besides the identity creed, I want to literally give you a cross if you don't have one, is I needed to have a cross. It needed to have the body of Jesus on it. This is not a superstitious symbol. This is a Galatians 2.20 symbol. Because Jesus died in an embodied way. I needed to have a cross, and I needed to be able to hold onto that cross in that moment and be crucified with Christ. I won't act on that feeling. I won't indulge that envy of that other guy who's doing more than I am. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. And I, I mean, the, the cross I had then was just almost dark with all my oil from my hand, just holding it. I'd hold it at night. I'd have it by my bed. I'd wake up with sexual temptation. Ah, okay, Lord, help me. I'm clinging to you. If you don't have a cross, and particularly if you don't have a crucifix, I want to give you one. Now, I also said that to your friends at 9 a.m., and they took me up on it, and they took a lot of them. Um, so I have some left, and I'll get more for you. I really do. I'm, I'm really serious. I, I, want to, I want to give you one. I want you to have one of these. I gave these to our men 10 years ago on the men's retreat, and I want you to have one as you journey with the Lord. Because I want you to learn how to be crucified with Christ and how to suffer with the Lord Jesus. But why would you suffer? Why? Why go through that? But the other side of suffering is life. You know how I feel on Easter 
day here at rest. That can happen all the time in the Christian life. On the other side of suffering is life. On the other side of suffering is the purpose of giving yourself in love. For he loved us, the last part of Galatians 2.20 says, and gave himself for us. And when you can understand that, you can understand what Pope John Paul II taught, that man cannot fully know himself until he gives the gift of himself. It's in the giving of ourselves that we have full identification with Jesus. Jesus on the cross, this is not an anomaly moment where, oh no, horrible day for Jesus. This is God in his fullness. This is God in his perfection. The picture of God giving up himself on the cross is what God wants us to understand about him and what he wants us to understand about ourselves. And so you suffer through this to get to the other side of a life of joy and purpose where you give yourself up for others. Don't you want to be that person that can stand in a conversation while someone is saying something you're not even that interested in and actually engage? Rather than waiting for them to finish so you can say something you're interested in about yourself? I mean, wouldn't you love to be that person? Wouldn't you love to be a person who has done the work of suffering, done the work of being crucified with Christ, you've decided who tells you who you are, and you have chosen the path of Jesus telling you who you are, and the Bible, Jesus' words, telling you who you are, so that you're ready in that moment to stand up. You're ready in that moment to suffer. You're ready in that moment when temptation, which in itself is not a sin, not a good thing, but it's not a sin, comes upon you. You're ready in that moment. You're prepared in that moment. You're fully alive. You're alive. You're awake. You actually know who you are as a man. You know who you are as a woman. You know who you are in your marriage. You know who you are as a celibate. You've got one voice, the voice of Jesus, his word. You've got one feast, one drink. This is such good news. And I'm so overjoyed that we're going to spend this season together in Epiphany. Living by openness. Living by dying. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.